Hello and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny in the studio high above the Dongcheng district with my co-host David Moser. We're actually in the same room together. COVID protocols be damned. How you doing, David? <laughs> Good. Good to see you face to face. It feels like every time we, we have one of these episodes, you and I look at each other and go, what's new in the world of COVID? And I imagine that if for the you know three or four listeners outside of China, that must seem really quite strange because the rest of the world, it feels like has completely moved on. And as more and more people I know or we know are going back home either for a little bit of a break or for a extended break, I get word back and everyone says the same thing. It's like we landed and it's like we either landed on a different planet, a different part of the multiverse, a different <laughs> point in the timeline. Right. It's like the world is in a whole, the rest of the world seems to be in a different place than China is right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder what this disconnect might mean for, you know, just for the policy here right now, because it doesn't seem, at least as far as I know, that it's going to change anytime soon. Although you, you saw a report today that offered perhaps just a glimmer of hope. Yeah, I mean, there are some signs that, that the zero COVID thing is maybe going to be in the, the new normal for a long time, but there's going to be some some openings. One is visa relaxation. They're letting uh, families of foreigners living here and then also Chinese uh, people who haven't been able to come back. They're loosening up some of the bureaucracy around it. They don't. You don't have to have a PU letter. You don't have to go through quite the, as much COVID rigmarole to get in. And flights, of course, are resuming. And, and then also... There have been some, you know, very visible reports in both in English and in Chinese about the low level of actual hospitalization and death with the Omicron variant in Shanghai. So there's been statistics out there I've seen the last few days. So there's a feeling that zero COVID, you know, is is not going to end anytime soon. But I think you're right. There's For, it, for me, it's kind of strange because you mentioned these parallel universes. The West as a whole, I would say, at least our country, the United States, has never really understood or had a clear picture of what was going on inside China for reasons we've talked about on the podcast. It just isn't covered that much. There aren't as many people from the inside reporting out uh, the, the few Peter Hesslers there are, are you know, are gone. But the same is true now. They don't understand still what's happening now with the zero COVID. I've had requests to do a couple of BBC interviews where they want to know someone on the inside, you know, tell us what's happening. And I think they have this, they, they hear the word lockdown and they hear the word, you know, quarantine and they think, oh my God, you know, the rest of the world has gone on. China is still being, you know, turmoil with these grappling with COVID outbreaks. And I, it was very difficult to kind of disappointing for them to hear that, no, it's really not so bad. It's a kind of a new normal that we go through now. It's very, very mafan. It's, it's a lot of hassle. You have to get these tests. You have to show, show your, your, your QR code everywhere. Uh, it, it's getting tedious and boring now. It's no longer scary or at least a bit exciting. exciting. They are doing, the government, at least in Beijing, not so much Shanghai, but in our context, are doing pretty good. And, and life can go on to some kind of normal. You can go to a bar, you can go to, out to eat. And that's kind of hard to explain to people on the outside that can't imagine why the, the disproportionate amount of resources being devoted to this, to this virus, which most of the world now is considered to be you know, uh, in its final stages of danger. Now, I'm gonna take kind of a contrarian perspective here because I, I get it. No, I mean, you, contrarian? I, I understand. It's not, you know, I, I also talk to people on the on the outside <laughs> and everybody's like, you know, are, are you doing OK? Do you need us to send food? And don't get me wrong. There was some there was some pretty scary and wicked shit that was happening in Shanghai last month. But I, I agree with you. It's not nearly as bad as people perhaps on the outside think it is. On the other hand, it sure as shit ain't good. We have to get tested every three days. I usually get tested every two days because if I wait to the third day and the test Here's a surprise. It doesn't actually work. The result doesn't show up because the app was designed by somebody's cousin-in-law. Then I'm kind of screwed the next day. So now I'm getting it every two days. Restaurants and bars are open, except when they're not, which is right now in many parts of the city. And the part of that that's really tricky is if you run a business here, if you run a travel company, if you run a restaurant, if you run a bar, if you run a school, there's no real mechanism to plan ahead longer than next week because there's a potential like you know if you have this you invest or you you spend money to you know restock your inventory because the last lockdown or the last closure just ended 
and you get everything and you fill your freezer with food and you get ready to reopen your restaurant and three days later somebody goes to a party who had COVID and suddenly everything gets shut down again for four weeks or you run a travel company and you're trying to plan trips in July, October, April of next year and still you have no idea will they run and you know it, it may not be a situation where, where people are being you know chained to their uh, couches while people in PPE you know come to their homes every day and, and jam swabs down their throat although I suppose somebody in the Beijing government if wishing made it so but at the same time I think that the COVID fatigue is a real thing. I mean, sure, lots of people are still very supportive of this. Nobody wants to get COVID. If you look online, everyone's like, you know, Jio, the government's doing a good job. But what I, f- I feel that that's steadily eroding. Yeah, I agree. I mean, COVID fatigue is the right word. Everyone's sick of it, but they're not sick of the virus. And that's, so, you know, something that the government them- themselves want to still highlight as, as, their, as their crowning achievement in all of this. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, there are these uh, stainless steel large kiosks, you know, testing kiosks that are that are portable, it's seemingly. They may have wheels on the bottom of them, but they're... They're old containers. They're old containers. They're all like, they're all like, some of them are modified repurposed That could be. The one, I'm, the one I'm, the two I'm thinking of near me look, look brand new. Um, maybe they've been, you know, shellacked or something. But anyway, they're just, a, it's just a little kiosk where the... Where the PPE dressed, per, you know, uh, technician go, you know, the, it's the thing where the rubber gloves, you know, jut out beyond the glass so that he, so that the technician doesn't even have to come in contact with the outside world. And I hear there are 9,000 of those in Beijing. Uh, and I don't know how fast this, they came up with this, who got the, the job of manufacturing these things, uh, what the ultimate cost was as part of the whole COVID, the zero COVID strategy. But you look. I look at this, and they think, and I think, they're hunkering down, if that's the right word, for a for a long term of this new normal of testing, 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 contact tracing every single day, uh, and I think they're betting on to, to people being as long as they have seventy percent, eighty percent of the normal freedoms they normally have, people will lower their heads, go ahead and do what's what's needed and say this is our new life. And then, then we don't know what's going to happen after the party congress this fall. It could be that all of this just completely changes after that. I mean, it is very possible that the only reason for this is to keep everything stable, no no rising death rates, up until that crucial node where this party meets and Xi Jinping is now, you know, the new pope. And then, and then suddenly, miraculously, all these things disappear and are melted into scrap metal. First of all, <laughs> I hope you're willing to put money on that bet. <laughs> so, I, mean, the, I mean, these things are everywhere. We can literally look out the window from where we're sitting, and there's one right below where we're sitting right now with a line there. It's, and, uh, you know, it's actually where I go get tested. I can look, out my, look down from the high above Dongcheng and see how long the line is at any given moment. I'll tell you, though. They look kind of steampunk, actually, in style. They're not really modern, but they're, they, they look kind of, you know, you know what I mean by steampunk? I'm sure you know. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I just, I, I'm thinking, I mean, your description of them is like, it's a metal container that you approach, and two arms with plastic gloves reach out from the container, and then they take a swab, and they put it in your throat, and then they apply that swab, and then match it to a serial number that you've been... It's a David Cronenberg movie. Right? This is one of those things that, like, I think when we explain it to each other because we live here, it's like, oh, yeah, it's not a problem. But, you know, if you're an like, average person who's not been to China recently is listening to this going, holy mother of Jesus. I mean, it does sound very dystopian. Yeah, but this has always been my problem. <laughs> Anything about China has the same strain. When we talk about it, we're used to it. But when I explain it to people outside, it, it's the same feeling. So to me, this just sounds like another problem. It's China's uniqueness that never gets to the outside world. Somebody one time asked me why I've lived in China for so long. Actually, a lot of people these days are asking <laughs> me why I've lived in China for so long. But one of the thing, one of my th- sort of throwaway lines that I, I've used all for, for a while now is always like, because... You know, no matter how long you're here, whether it's a week, a month, a year, every time you walk out your door, you run into something and you look at it and you think, in any other country, that would be strange. But here, but here it's, it's just like, yeah, sure, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Just metal box with two arms reaching out of it, testing me. Sure, no, not a problem at all. I will say this about those metal boxes, the tests and everything going on. 
somebody is getting super rich, rich. off Definitely. of this. Yes. And and part of this is that we've already started to see a few cases of people being prosecuted for improper use right. of the laboratory facilities right. or for cutting corners, cutting corners, embezzling money. That's one thing. But the other thing too is that local governments right now are under tremendous financial strain. They are right. bearing a great deal of the cost of you know the transitioning of the of the Chinese economy. And this is kind of an unfunded mandate from the central government. Mm-hmm. And while Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, they can roll this out, they can take it from the social insurance fund, which isn't great, but they can do that. You gotta wonder, once you get down to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth tier like how many tiers are there? Yeah. But you know, once you get down the, the urban hierarchy, this is going to be a really expensive thing for these local governments to keep going. It, it, it yeah, it already is. Uh, there's there's been a lot of speculation about this, and there's been a little a lot of talk in the foreign media about how much money is actually being spent on this COVID agenda. Uh, I heard one figure that, uh, in fact, someone at the BBC told me this that said, "Oh, I just Googled it." Uh, it cost uh, it cost uh, two hundred million yuan a day for all of China's China's major cities to get tested, and I went, what two hundred million yuan for all of China's major cities? That can't be correct, but I mean they, these are the kind of numbers that get thrown out. So I've also seen estimates that that say you know it might cost as as much as you know twenty million, thirty, forty million a day for all the testing that goes free testing that's happening in Beijing. When you count all of the infrastructure, all of the, the the manpower that's devoted to it, you know, it's a lot of money. And somebody's getting rich and somebody's paying a lot of money for this. I think this is one of those things, though, that kind of going back to what we, we opened with, that when people that I know when they when they do land back in the U.S. or in Europe or where they flee to Thailand, where apparently weed is now legal, like as of yesterday, who knew? Really? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I love Thai food. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Starting next week, Barbarians at the Gate from the beach in Phuket. <laughs> Absolutely. But the the thing is that when when people finally leave this kind of cycle of testing and closures, and they real, I was talking with a friend who just kind of went back to the U.S., and he's like, yeah, I didn't realize how much I'd kind of normalized the just the again the dystopian nature of what i was living in and now that i'm not there I, it, it is surprising to me how much i was willing to accept and i was like well aren't you worried about like getting covid and he goes oh don't worry because i plan to come back to china he said so i don't want to screw that up and get covid too late in my trip here which means i'd have to wait even longer to come back so pretty much because my plan here is i just landed yesterday uh, my next move is to kind of go to a rodeo and start kissing people and get COVID immediately. And then, then I will, then I don't have to worry about testing for it when I'm getting ready to fly back to China. And he goes, if, if I fly back to China and this, we have talked so much on this show about this kind of like two worlds, this decoupling, this like divergence that is happening right now. And the, it's, Part of it is COVID, part of it is policy, part of it is geopolitics. There's a lot going on there. But w- I think if we have a theme for at least the, this year's episodes, it's been trying to make sense of this divide and trying to also explore the people and the processes by which you know the connections can be maintained. And some of that's education, uh, some of that is through exchanges, and some of that is through media. And one of the things I think, when you know, ten years ago, there were quite a few uh, globally global-facing news and uh, news newspapers and magazines in China. Many of those, um, especially the ones that were covering more sensitive subjects, have either closed, as in the case of like Southern Weekend and right. Feng Zhongmuo, right, or they have kind of. Uh, narrowed their brief, as in the case of like Taishin. Um, one of the, the stalwarts, though, has been for a long time the magazine World of Chinese. The stories they cover are stories that are of interest to an international audience. And um, I, I've written for them. Uh, I don't know if you have you written? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they don't, as much as they can, I think they, they try not to shy away from the hard topics. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're really fortunate uh, today because in a moment we're going to have with us Hattie Leo. She is the managing editor 
of uh, World of Chinese. She herself is an award-winning communications professional, writer, and journalist. And, and I think Patty is the kind of the perfect person to talk about the opportunities and the challenges for keeping that information connection open in an age where it just seems like so many channels are being closed. Great. I look forward to talking with her. I've never met her. You're good friends, but this should be great. A great conversation. Okay. Well, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll have Hattie Leo with us. With us today is Hattie Leo. She is a writer, journalist, and award-winning communication studies researcher. She is the managing editor of the World of Chinese magazine published here in Beijing. Hattie was born in China, raised in China, Canada, and the U.S., something I think we'll talk a little bit about today because it's really fascinating to have somebody who has such a broad perspective on all the issues that we are interested in here at the podcast. The World of Chinese Magazine is this is this great publication. It's one of the few remaining, I really kind of feel, global-facing publications that is being produced here in China. I thought, could you tell us a little bit more about the magazine, where it started, and, and the mission as it is right now? Yeah, thank you, Jeremiah, for that very nice introduction based on my LinkedIn profile, but even better. Um, <laughs> so regarding the world of Chinese, so it was actually uh, established a long time ago for a print magazine, so 2006, all the way in the Dark Ages. It's still, ex it's still printing today, which is, I think, quite an achievement. Uh, in some ways, we've been really lucky because it's uh, funded, it used to be funded entirely by the commercial press, which is China's oldest still existing publishing company, mostly focusing on educational books, such as Xinhua Dictionary and various textbooks. Um, and so they founded this magazine in 2006 uh, as sort of a complement to this older magazine they had called The World of English, uh, which is translations of English articles and other texts into Chinese to help Chinese people learn English. So they thought they found the opposite of that, uh, a magazine focused on teaching Chinese language to foreign students, business people, and other people who are interested in Chinese learning. Um, so originally, the magazine also had a big bilingual component. You'd have, you know, maybe essays written by foreign exchange students about their travels. Um, and there, you know, there would be lots of Chinese texts or translations taken out of that. And you, you know, you get to, you get to see how that word works in the sentence. Um, and that still exists in some form in the magazine. We do have a lot of language sections still. Uh, but around 2011, the magazine uh, went in a different direction. So it's more focused on original storytelling. Uh, now, we still run some translations such as fiction and uh, some stories translated from Chinese media. But the the majority of our content is all written in English. It's original to us, uh, and it also adopted over, especially the last five or so years, especially since I joined, uh, more journalistic bent. So we, you know, insist on the writer going out and actually finding original sources, finding people to talk to for the story, uh, instead of just writing it based on their own experiences or on things that they read or things that their friends have told them. And yeah, so it adopted very much journalistic style and orientation. At the same time, it is still run as by a publishing company as a sort of uh, Chinese language slash culture teaching resource. Uh, and so in that sense, we I would say we have slightly less pressure on all sides to you know, represent China in a certain way. So our managers are, I would say, more open-minded as to, okay, yeah, here, here are some things we could talk about. We could talk about this social issue in a nuanced way and you know, justify it as, okay, well, we're explaining this very important facet of Chinese contemporary culture. We can go talk to people. We're not so constrained. You know, there's no one kind of above us telling us, well, this is the news from China now, then you have to go report it. Um, or you have, you have to cover this party meeting or something like that. So as opposed to traditional journalism outlets, we have a lot more, I'd say, freedom to choose uh, both what we cover and how we cover it. Heidi, I've read the, the, this, the World of Chinese for a long time. I remember uh, it was available for some reason in the English department at Beijing Foreign Studies University, where I was teaching at the time. I, I very much at the, at the outset realized that this was meant to be a publication for foreigners to understand China in a more entertaining way. But I actually found that my, my students, my graduate students also, were borrowing it and, and taking it home and reading it much more than some of the foreigners. And the reason was I think they found it entertaining and fun to read about China and Chinese culture in English uh, because it's, they're more familiar with it. But now as I, 
as that's so that's not unusual and and you know of course you probably uh, have readership like that now but when i see how the how it's evolved and see some of the recent stories i think some of the stories are are not just to for chinese interest i mean you're talking about problems and social problems that now the whole world is is facing so so what is your readership now is is it is it still mostly foreigners do you think or do you have a kind of mix of chinese also wanting to read about these things and for the fun of it in english um, so yeah, David, you're absolutely right. We have a sizable, um, often surprisingly large uh, number of readers who are Chinese readers who who read it because they just think it's the stories are really good or they really enjoy the words that we use, which are more fun than, for example, they might see in China Daily um, or they topics that they haven't read elsewhere or that topics that they have read elsewhere and maybe they want to know how to explain it to their foreign friends or how you know what kind of words they could use to explain these topics that perhaps foreigners have asked them about that being said uh in terms of branding and in terms of just editorial uh mission i mean it's we we of course, have to have a specific audience in mind. Otherwise, you know, we don't know who we'd be writing for. These so we are still writing. I would say, um, our when we do these marketing branding exercises, we imagine these two people. We have in our mind as our target audience this American guy his, who is 28 years old is currently in Thailand, but would like to get back into China someday when COVID <laughs> ends. Uh, so he, th- this guy is kind of our primary audience. We do in terms. In terms of how we choose our topics, what kinds of things we think would be interesting to them, uh, what you know, what kind of language are we supposed to use? How should, do we have to explain things like WeChat, for example, or something about China? <laughs> so, 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 so can you imagine things, if he yeah. hears if some guy in Thailand, twenty eight years old, hears our podcast? <laughs> she, he says, "Hey, that's me." <laughs> Yeah, and every, every, every time I talk, I tell people about this guy. So I'm just like, oh, I, I know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, oh, he, I think he works in IT, too. He's a, he's a digital nomad and is from Colorado, Denver. Um, anyway, so uh, and then our other target audience, we also have a, a woman who is uh, overseas Chinese. So she yeah, either she, I, I can't remember. She was either born in China or moved at a young age or maybe she was born in Canada or um, who is very interested in issues such as feminism, social justice. Uh, we think she probably volunteered uh, in China, maybe in some, some place in Qinghai when she was in college. With these two types of audience in mind, both of them obviously are uh, located in Western countries countries or they kind of draw their cultural references from Western countries. Our, when we choose our topics in terms of how, what kind of words we use, what kind of explanations we provide, that still does guide our uh, creative process. So I would say, yeah, it is still targeted at a uh, foreign reader, but I think it's also it's, I think it's a sign of how well we do our job that it also appeals equally to Chinese readers and other people who do not fit the profile of these two people, these two imaginary audiences we created still find lots to get out of the magazine. It, it seems like one of the challenges with editing a magazine that is a kind of bridge publication and also when you're kind of thinking of these imaginary target audiences, right? How do I explain, how do we explain China to these target audiences who are not of China, but are interested in China, that requires a very special perspective, one that a lot of people don't always have. And Dave and I were talking before you arrived that both of us have written for World of Chinese before, and I've worked with several of your predecessors, many of whom, I'm just going to go on record here, good friends of mine, love you fellas, but you all look kind of very similar from very similar backgrounds. And it does seem interesting that after, it, it took a while, for the world of Chinese to have a, a female editor and also an editor that was actually born in China. And Hattie, since, since the, the, I said, I really feel like that perspective has been part of the resurgence of world of Chinese. I was wondering if I could ask you just maybe briefly tell us a little bit about your background, your experience as a, uh, growing up and as a journalist and, and how, if you, if you feel that helps to inform your sense of mission with your, with your team. I think it absolutely does help me inform what the world of Chinese is and is growing into. I think I definitely put kind of my personal stamp on it since I've joined and since I've, you know, grown into leadership positions. Uh, So brief biography, I was born here in Beijing. Um, I moved to Canada when I was nine years old. I also lived, I hate the question of when people ask, where are you from in Canada? Because I've lived in various cities in Canada um, and none of my family is currently in Canada uh, because a 
a few years later, uh, they actually moved to Seattle, and that's where I went to high school. And then I went back to Canada when I entered university, and I did you know, I did an exchange year in China. And then when I did my master's degree, it was the same thing. I did a year of it in Canada. And I did a year of it at the communication university in China, uh, in Beijing, who as a dual degree program. And after I graduated from there, I started uh, working uh, at the World of Chinese. Uh, with the Vancouver China Daily, that was sort of in between. So between uh, when I first started my uh, graduate studies. Um, so in terms of that, I, I feel like, yeah, not just uh, somebody who's born in China, but who does have the language skills and not just English Chinese language skills, but who is, I would say, fluent with words and convincing with words that this is a, a huge advantage in terms of just being able to communicate uh, across the team and kind of be able to identify what kinds of things we need. So I, I do, yes, I have worked uh, in other publications and other offices where there are there is you know a sizable Chinese staff and then there are a few uh, expat foreign editors um, and yeah they're very much I think it was running on parallel tracks like you know they work together they produce this thing together but they might not hang out together it might be that they're kind of just they try not to interact very much with each other as long as they're not fighting that's good <laughs> since we've been here we uh, since I've been uh, part of this office I've definitely tried to build bridges first within our team try to sort of yeah kind of get everyone on the same page everyone agrees so for example if a Chinese editor maybe they're just they're just in charge of research for this story while they do that they they do they know kind of what what the foreign editor what the writer wants out of the story and how overall as a team how we want to present uh, ourselves how we want to present our brand how we want to present uh, this issue and that definitely informs what kind of questions they would ask what what uh, what kind of people they would choose to talk to for the story and so yeah I think it's really important that uh, for this magazine to grow, go forward, that everyone is on the same page as to what it, what is our mission and what kind of uh, what kind of a bridge we want to be, and not just oh well this is just a job I'm just gonna I'm gonna do it, um, and whatever's not out whatever's not in my job description I just don't care about. Could I ask a question about how you perceive or do you even mention the issue of soft power? Because I mean for me that would be the obvious when I first saw the magazine I. Th that's came to mind. I mean, this is part of China's soft power to, to introduce uh, the, not just the language, but the culture and the history to people and get them interested in it, because China does have lots of very cool soft power. But I found out, I mean, this is not from just your magazine, but just from lots of similar magazines that try to present uh, Chinese culture to foreigners, that sometimes there's a disconnect between what Chinese considers soft power and what Westerners are more interested in, right? I think your magazine does a very good job at finding those things that actually interest actually both foreigners and Chinese because you find things that are intrinsically interesting. But there has been a problem in the past with a lot of state media, magazines, articles, promotions that try to grab foreign readers. And it's it revolves around, you know, making kites or, you know, pandas and their lifestyle and this or this sort of thing or or some uh, someone for most of foreigners have never even heard of uh, a, a scholar in the past who wrote a book or something like that or or uh, somebody like Qian Zhongshu or something which it's a, a great author I love but most people have never heard of him etc cetera, etc cetera. so I, I wonder have you think do you think of yourself as a soft power purveyor or soft power uh sort of a media that presents, or is that something you just don't worry about? We just want to present interesting stories and we don't really care as long as they are fun and interesting and useful. Yeah, David, I don't think it's helpful, at least for us to do our jobs, to be thinking about is this soft power or is it not? Because I, th yeah, I think what we do want to do is to tell good stories. We are all journalists uh, and we are, I think one of the things that really attracted me to talk, as we call it, uh, in the uh, in, in the beginning, talk. The world of yeah, it's, it is just really, it's very long, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's talk. Plus you can make all these good puns with it, like when we go for team cocktails, it's twocktails. So okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the things that attracted me to the magazine is that just it's, it is very good quality. People who make it clearly really care about not just how, it, how you know, the words are, but also how it looks, you know, how the bindings are. So for us, I see my personal mission for at, at Twalk is to tell 
like produce more good writing in the world since I'm a really huge geek for like long form feature writing I subscribe to like the long reads newsletter and all that so I, I, t- I tend to read it a lot and I yeah I wanted to tell those kinds of stories those kinds of stories that I would say there's not a lot of in existence about China and about I would say even most developing countries they either it's very dehumanized so either you don't uh, really hear about people you kind of you you know, you have stories like China decides to do this or what do we do about China, which is like this whole one <laughs> right. entity. Um, or uh, if they do inspire any emotion, it might be negative emotions. So, you know, like fear or pity or horror. But yeah, so what we really want to do is just, you know, put more put more good writing into the world and good videos because now we're doing multimedia stuff, good videos and podcasts into the world. Also, yeah, that, you know, make people feel something, not just negative emotions, but yeah, make people laugh make people you know feel humor or feel the passion of this person has for their for their job as you were saying uh, David I think those things are intrinsically interesting to people yeah we're we're looking for stories that are good stories in and of themselves that nobody has done before and I mentioned earlier like we're fairly fortunate that having the existence that we have the institutional support that we have um, our management isn't too concerned about you know are we meeting these soft power targets we don't have specific targets targets that are have to do with soft power specifically we have things like revenue targets of course and <laughs> of subscription course. targets but yeah so as long as we are meeting those of course as long as you know no one comes down on us politically then we are generally free to go out and seek good stories uh, yeah I, I think we have fairly open-minded so you've been doing this quite a while what what do you find are the stories that are attractive that get, get the most feedback and interest among foreigners Okay, so among foreigners, I think uh, they they are into stories that are what we call on trend. So recently, we did a story about consent culture and sex education in China due to mm-hmm. events in Tangshan, and um, I've gotten good feedback about how we tend to feature Chinese voices. So we wouldn't necessarily interview a Western expert, a professor of you know women's studies at a university in a in the UK or in the US, which I think some of the other reading materials they have often default to. For our stories, I tend to insist on, we, we first go to see if any Chinese organizations, any Gong Zhonghao, any public accounts on WeChat have already written about this. And, you know, like what, yeah, what, what are people in China already saying about it? Because I do feel like, especially for a lot of foreigners who live here, they they complain that they're in an expat bubble, but they don't really know how to get out of it because either due to just their circle of acquaintance being limited or language skills being limited. Yeah, they're really they're not sure what their neighbors are talking about and are reading. And so bringing those voices into into kind of their orbit, it kind of it, yeah, it gives them the sense of being connected. Like, oh, you know, everybody, all the Chinese people around me are talking about this issue and these are their opinions and these are their proposed solutions for it. And and now I know instead of me only getting sources about China from people who are outside of China. Yeah, I, I can also be a part of this conversation. Uh, it, I, we saw the, the article about consent because it was just on the WeChat account this week. That's a really good example. What are, what are some of the more recent stories or topics that you really feel this is the kind of story I really want to tell that really the office was like really excited about like, you know, and I know that every, I'm sure just like any good editor, every story in the magazine is a gem of information and brilliant writing. I get that. But are there ones you're like, yes, this one really rocks. What are some of these topics or stories that you're particularly excited about? As I told you before this started, I'm really excited about the UFOs because there there isn't a lot of writing about Chinese UFOs. I don't think that's something that most mainstream media outlets would think about covering it doesn't really have that much i would say it doesn't really have that much real world application right now in terms of you know ec- economic or trade war or military i mean it actually does have some military application but that's not what this story in particular is about so uh, for this one we our writer actually went out and interviewed these grassroots ufo hunters there's this guy who talked for three hours about how he is actually an ambassador for an alien civilization that has already made contact (laughs) on earth and also he tries to bill foreign governments for being like a mediator so he, he says he can convince the aliens to move earthquakes out of populated areas so that they don't kill a lot of people obviously he can't prove that because the earthquake didn't happen so <laughs> they'll just have to take his word for it but yes yeah, so it's i mean it's really interesting and a lot of actually after the story 
was published, a lot of people wrote to me also saying they're surprised that these people do still exist in China because, yeah, it does kind of run contrary to this image you have of, well, okay, these kind of paranormal crazies, uh, they're, you know, a bad influence on society or, you know, they're supernatural superstition. But actually, look, when we when our deputy managing editor, Sam, who wrote the story, looked into the issue, he actually found that these alien investigators grew out of this interest in paranormal and uh, as well as uh, space exploration that started in the 80s when a lot of Western literature and sci-fi was coming into China. And that kind of never really died. That's when a lot of, you know, sci-fi writers like Yang Ping, Liu Cixin got inspired. And uh, even though they're more regulated now, these paranormal uh, and extraterrestrial research associations, they are more regulated now. They do also still fit uh, with China's space exploration program ambitions. And so it's actually a part of Chinese culture. I don't don't think most people would have thought of even existing, but just by looking at it, you discover actually a lot. There are lots of layers. You discover well, a little bit of history about how this interest in sci-fi got started. You discover a, a, a more about uh, how more, I guess, more legitimate forms of research, like the FAST, the telescope, kind of the relationship between these types of research and the grassroots investigators. And yeah, and, and you just get to meet some really cool insane people uh you may have otherwise never gotten to hear from uh in a story about china so i'm very excited about that and yeah and nobody's really done this story before so i'm glad to be one of the first yeah i agree this is a fascinating story because it is you know the the old cliche like if it's a story about china it's either big china bad china weird china but this isn't China being weird. This is how to put it. This is weirdness being, in being, China. Being human. Right. No, this being is exactly human. It. This is right. like this is sort of like weirdness in a keep Austin weird kind of way, which is which I think speaks to a diversity among the uh, among people here that isn't always immediately obvious. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that your magazine is fulfilling that. There was a in the eighties and nineties something called Baogao Wenxue, you know, reportage journalism. And it was this, you know, it was just talking to ordinary people about that. Uh, there was another book called Beijing Ran that was also just uh, interviewing different, uh, you know, crosstalk performer or a funeral parlor director in Beijing. Those kinds of things, I think, Jeremiah's right, and I think you're right. I think those kind of things, there, there is an interest in that, and there is a need to. I mean, I think it's important that we just get a better sense of the diversity here. That's that's something that Jeremiah and I have talked a lot about. That. The stereotypes about China are based on, you know, some of these key talking points that all the media uses, and they don't realize what amazing diversity of opinion and interests are here. So you're doing your magazine is poised to do that very well. Yeah. um, So I've talked with readers as well, um, and one thing that always strikes me sometimes they I've gotten feedback being like, you know, it never occurred to me that there are memes or jokes in China. Like you don't really hear about. Chinese people, yeah, being funny, um, or or like you know, funny in a non-political way too. So maybe uh, I, I remember we had this discussion in our office about the lying flat meme when it yeah. first came out, and uh, and of course there are lots of uh, Western media who are talking about it as a form of like resistance, which like at some level you could see it that way, but I feel like that misses out on a lot of different applications of that meme that don't necessarily have that political uh, aspect, people kind of taking a thing and building up on it and just kind of yeah, being weird with each other on the internet or being funny. Uh, you don't, yeah, you don't get to hear about that. You don't get to hear about, yeah, just you know, families being supportive of yeah. each other, fam- like people not necessarily being good or bad, but uh, very, maybe just very stupid and somebody else is also very stupid and <laughs> together they create a problem and how that problem gets resolved. That, 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 yeah, I think that sort of humanity is often missing. Yeah. As I was saying earlier, they either, either they inspire negative emotions or they're not supposed to inspire any emotions at all. You, you've talked a lot about how the publishing house that, that sponsors World of Chinese has given you a great deal of latitude in what Com- you can report. Commercial press. Commercial right? press, exactly. And I think that that's great. There were more publications in China 10 years ago that were covering a wide range of stories, some of which, like uh, Southern Week and Nanfeng Zhuomo, don't exist anymore. Uh, some of them, like Caixin, have kind of narrowed their scope slightly. But and there a lot are of, and a lot of blogs. And a lot of blogs, but you know, but there there still are some publications like World of Chinese, like Sixth Tone, that are still, I think, 
doing a, a really good job of telling a broad range of stories. But nevertheless, it does feel like the guardrails are kind of closing in a little bit without perhaps crossing any boundaries. Are there topics that you do try to steer away from or you've steered writers away from or for either reasons because you don't want to get commercial press in trouble or just because you feel like it's a story that's been just told too many times? Well, our recent COVID coverage uh, did get lots of both positive and negative attention. So yeah, lots of people, uh, we did that story about how migrant workers were surviving the lockdown, you know, without the food supplies or, you know, living in villages where they don't, they can't really enforce very good quarantine uh, measures. So I think, yeah, we were one of the first uh, publications to cut to focus on that. And so it got a lot of attention. I actually had this guy write to me you know, accusing me of giving for American imperialists the knife with which to stab China with. Um, but yeah, of course, I also got a lot of uh, positive feedback. Um, so for that, and, and and that was good, I think, like, for, that is overall a good situation. Um, but we do also, I, th- I think the idea is to present uh a spectrum of happenings. So Shanghai is was one thing that was happening in China at the time. And of course, it was a very big thing. But you know, there were other things that were happening. We also have other sections like culture, language, yeah, by, by kind of mixing it up. So we've, we have serious topics, we have things that are, you know, inspire more negative emotions. And then we have things that inspire different kinds of emotions. Uh, throughout, if you look at what we publish throughout this week, we have we keep balance, and then we can show our management, you know, hey, look, we have, we are presenting a very complete picture of what's going on in China this week. We have, you know, good things. We have things that are not necessarily good, but still uh, kind of fits in with our mission of presenting what is really going on on in ordinary people's lives and also ordinary people's solutions. A lot of, you know, it's very like a lot of the criticism we try to, uh, if there's any criticism in the article, definitely to make it constructive. So to highlight, like I said before, highlight what Chinese people may already be discussing or taking action about in the situation. Any solutions that we could have, like that that we could think of within the current system? Like, are there any institutions like, okay, if they just took action, could we you know, make this better or any people within China, um, because I think what a lot of people have issue with is this sort of, okay, well, if only if only China wasn't China, then we wouldn't have this problem, which is <laughs> not very helpful. I like to have this analogy, um, which I don't know if works or not. But for example, if you ta- told me about climate change and how, you know, that's such a big issue, like, what should we do about it? And I said, well, you know, it's because of our capitalist system of extraction. If we didn't have that, we would not have these problems which is true, but also very unhelpful, because what are you supposed to do with that information? Um, If I gave you some actual solutions we can have in terms of reducing our carbon footprint, that is, I think, more likely to engage you in conversation and convince people. So uh, other than there are, yeah, there are very controversial political topics that we don't touch, both because, uh, I mean, I don't think there is possible to have a very nuanced discussion about some of these issues. Either you're like on one side or not. But yeah, we try to go for issues that do have, I guess, a bit more wiggle room in terms of like, in terms of the possible solutions uh, we could have and solutions that we could achieve within China right now. So I know your 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 staff and your writers and everything are very very multicultural, bilingual, very like you, just like you yourself. It seems to me that people coming to your magazine, if you're talking about foreigners, uh, I mean I have to admit it, my country people, the Americans, are are usually a little bit uh, cultural centric in that they're more interested in how does this country treat this issue that we are care that we care about and they they they'll, they'll say oh what is lgbtq like in china you know what is good? do they have guns what about the teaching of you know sex education in the schools and the things that we care about is what is the chinese system that's where they go first and that's what they're interested in you know that <laughs> how what a role does that play uh, in trying to say well we're going to just ignore that or we're going to try to edu- maybe uh, address some stereotypes here or or what i mean what, what is your approach to this yeah so that's actually a very i actually find that pretty helpful in terms of what are we going to write about this week well you know sometimes you just you take a thing in china that exists in the us and right. talk about how, how in what form it exists in china and there we go you have the story you don't have to 
you know, think of any more new ideas. And on some level, that's good because, I mean, they are evincing some sort of interest in China. They want to know whether something exists. So, okay, well, we'll give it to them. And in the process of doing that, we, again, highlight Chinese voices. So how is the understanding of gender identity different in China? Uh, Why isn't it perhaps like why aren't the thing why aren't certain services available or why aren't certain dis- discussions happening around this issue in the US why aren't they happening in China uh, what are the what's kind of a particular cultural context because yeah like the whole the whole magazine's aim is to present culture but culture in a very broadly defined sense so culture not as in as David was saying earlier objects or um, you know history but culture as in how people today contemporary people see things what what kind of what what sorts of historical social political factors influence their thought processes today so that culture in that sense really encompasses a whole range of topics so in yeah in that sense it helps us fulfill our mission in kind of a, a very easy way so yeah i think we'll not run out of topics to talk <laughs> about as long as there are Americans or people from other countries who are interested in knowing something that's familiar to us. Uh, what is that like in China? Because that's that's something that you can engage in conversation with them already. They're asking you a question. So instead of you trying to go up to them and shove this in their faces and be like, look, this is a thing about China you should know about. One of the things you've done with the, the world of Chinese talk, as I guess we're calling it, uh, has been to expand its reach, not just through the printed word, but also through multimedia. And in addition, the the world of Chinese has been one of the organizations I feel has been most energetic in promoting live events for writers, storytellers, and others to share, you know, their creative output. And I, I feel like in a time, not just with COVID, but also even before where the spaces for doing so are kind of becoming fewer and fewer, it's been really great to see, you know, so a group that's really trying to kind of keep that alive. I was curious, you know, how do these events kind of fit in with the overall goals of the magazine? And what do you feel like the future of these kind of events is for uh, for Beijing? We really would like to have more of those events, COVID permitting. Uh, that's something that I really ha- uh, have to thank our marketing team for. Because up until last year, we didn't have a dedicated marketing team. We kind of just put on those events when we, when our editors had time to organize them, or when you know, or when our management wanted to. For example, when we had our tenth anniversary, that's when we had to put on something. Although we didn't put on a fifteenth anniversary because that was last year and COVID and all that. So um, right now, we're trying to have regular events and uh, to really just make sure people know what the magazine is, because I do think a lot of people who would be interested in the magazine don't know about it, either because I don't know, maybe they don't read very much or uh, or they, they're not, yeah, they're not aware. I think a lot of people are not aware that these publications can or do exist in China. They might think, oh, well, all, all, I, all I can read are, you know, my People's Daily and my Chinese textbook. Um, so I had a conversation once with a writer who works in a, a foreign news agency. She's a researcher and she says, oh, yeah, I, I really want to write some of my own stuff. And I said, well, why don't you pitch to talk? And she said, oh, well, I was under the impression that everyone who wrote for this were experts in something and obviously that's true and like we had jeremiah of course write about history which he is an expert in and we do also we recently wrote some pieces about um, hiv in china that was a, that actually won an award but uh that uh, was also written by a scholar who was studying human rights at peking university so we do try to have that but we also we do basically accept pitches from anybody who has a good idea and so it kind of uh, depressed me that this writer didn't know that. So even though she knew about talk, she thought, "Oh well, I'm not really, I'm not exactly sure how it works. I'm not really sure what kind of stories are looking for." So I think there are lots of people who would be interested in this magazine who don't know about it yet, um, and who, and so we want to sort of build up this community. And another thing we've been trying to do to expand our reach. Uh, not just expand it in terms of quantity, as uh, as I'm sure you both know, especially as the you know, media environment gets more polarized. It's very difficult to talk to people on the like across the aisle on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's either they either they want to listen to you or they don't, right. uh, and there's nothing you can really do about that. So, in, as opposed to just trying to see, oh, this we want to get this many followers on Twitter. Um, we just want to keep building numbers. We're looking also for quality. So, people who are 
perhaps already sympathetic or who already would be receptive to the kind of stories that we produce and and their followers. So if they're influential in a field, we want to make sure they know about Twok and they can tell people they can they influence about Twok. That's I think live events are really important just to yeah to people know who we are. We exist. We're real people, not just experts on the field, which is nice. I've had a few students uh, of mine write for the magazine. The latest one was someone, I think she was a Yanjing scholar, but she wrote, she was writing about Xiangsheng, uh, crosstalk and some other things. But I, but I was wondering the difference in, in writing when it's when it's a foreign, she was you know just a foreigner. I'm sorry, was it Emily Conrad? Yes. Yeah, okay. Right. Um, I think her Chinese is pretty good too, yeah. right? But... Uh, but a foreigner coming from the outside and diving into a Chinese topic and researching it. She made a lot of phone calls and interviewed a lot of people for that article, right? That's interesting. I don't know how many of your people, what the process, that process is very different than having a Chinese person who knows a topic very well writing for foreigners, right? What's the balance of your writers and the articles? Um, to be honest, uh, like I said earlier, I don't really keep track of, you know, how many foreigners we have writing and how many Chinese people we have writing. It's more about, do you have a good idea and are you able to, you know, execute it? Are okay. you able to actually talk to all these people? Um, in terms of foreign writers specifically, though, I do, we do have pretty um, uh, high requirements for the story to have original primary sources. So either you go out and talk to these people if you have the language skills or you you know, figure it out somehow, I guess, maybe have a friend translate for you or one of our editors help you because our editors are always very willing to help people uh, do interviews, do translation. And um, in our, within our own staff, everyone is also expected to do their own research instead of having, our, you know, separate teams of researchers and reporters or writers um, and editors. Everyone sort of works on all fields. And if it, and if you get assigned the story, it kind of it, it is your story essentially. You get to go do the research and you do the writing and you even participate in some of the editing once uh, once it goes through uh, the process. Um, and that and that I think it's fairly important. Yeah, it, it, it does reduce a lot of miscommunication yeah. um, because lots of yeah nuances that you don't pick up on when this interview has been through like three transcriptions. <laughs> right. Um, or you know and and you know sometimes the Sometimes uh, the if if a uh, if a researcher does the research for you, maybe their English isn't super great either, or they they say they'll tell you, well, this is what I understood, and and you misunderstand it, and then it just keeps snowballing from here. Sometimes when I'm editing, I I do pick up on some of these mistakes, or I say, can you go back and check to see this is what they actually meant? Uh, we don't have specific requirements as opposed to the nationality or language ability, as long as the story you pitch is interesting and you you have the ability, I guess to actually make it happen. Well, I guess just one more question, Hattie, and, and it's a it's a kind of a big one, but you know, we, we started this we started this discussion with this idea that kind of there is an information decoupling and you know the world of Chinese is trying to help to kind of keep that those connections alive. Speaking both as the editor of the magazine, but maybe even beyond that, somebody who really does have um, a good and nuanced understanding of both information environments. You know, what do you see as the future of this decoupling? Is it is it going to get wider? Is there are there potential to bring things back together? You know, where are we going? Are, are you pessimistic, optimistic? What does the future look like? Yeah, it's really hard to say at this point. Um, one thing that does really concern me right now is that uh, not only is there you know are there people basically sending each other hate mail on the two sides uh, and and this is true both in China and in the US uh, that you know there's always accusations that you're like spying or you know you're being paid off to by whatever government or institutions to say something and um, and that's kind of concerning because it's not just you know people fighting amongst themselves now like if somebody wanted they could actually marshal some official, forces again either from their government or from uh, an internet company like google or twitter to shut you down to uh, and yeah and one person could actually have a lot of influence which is i guess kind of a blessing and a curse because on the one hand yay good for them they have all this power but also <laughs> hmm, that's kind of concerning that it, sometimes it just takes one person to raise yeah. concern in the proper quarter right. and you're canceled that is i think a trend that is very frightening in this current environment like you might not even be able to be heard anymore no matter what 
a, you know, how well you do your job. If somebody wanted, they could just make sure nobody hears about it and could, it could even spill like back into your future career and your personal life if in the, in the worst case scenario. Um, sometimes I do also have very optimistic moments, such as when I find out that um, actually there are always a lot of people willing to listen. So actually, when I, this has happened a long time ago when I was working at China Daily. I, I did the interviews with the Chinese Canadian veterans, and I was very surprised when I went to talk to these 90-year-old men and one woman how, I guess, they were just, they were really interested. So these are second-generation Chinese immigrants who grew up who were born, raised in Canada. Um, they may have gone to China to see family, but they haven't lived in China for any extended period. Um, and especially at that time, I think in Vancouver, uh, at least the mainstream media was all talking about these tensions between immigrant groups. So the older immigrants are don't like the Hong Kong immigrants that came in the 90s, who don't like the mainland immigrants who are coming now. Um, so I wasn't really expecting like, I, I don't know, a very warm reception in a, in a sense, but they were actually very interested in the work that we're doing. They, they want to know what's going on in China. They still feel some sort of connection to it. And one guy actually said, you know, I'm actually kind of pleased that China is getting stronger and more global. Maybe, you know, we'll be treated better in Canada. And others uh, who are not so strongly political about it were still, they were pleased, I think, that uh, because these people don't get interviewed, I think, by a lot of mainstream media or by global media. They might get interviewed by local media, but even when they're in Canadian media, it's always about how Canadian they are, you know, that they, you know, they are born and raised here. They are, they serve the country very loyally. This, these are all the ways that they are Canadian, even though they look different from, you know, our readers. So specifically having someone focus on their Chinese heritage and who wanted to know more about that or even more even know the negatives of, you know, like when they were growing up, what kind of discrimination they face and possibly still face now. That was an, a new experience to a lot of these groups and they really appreciated it. So I realized that it is actually, yeah, it's possible to reach a lot of people that a lot of people you may not be hearing from are perhaps waiting for you to reach out and we're waiting, are waiting to find out about you. That I think in more practical terms feeds into our strategy of uh, we're not so much about broadcasting as wide as we can, but more of finding those connections, building those connections, finding the, uh, figuring out what kind of people would be receptive to this content and then make making sure our content does reflect what they want. So they want more nuanced stories about China. They just want good stories about China that isn't necessarily, like even if you took the China aspect out of it, it's still an intrinsically good story. That is, I think what we can yeah it looks i think it looks to me looks pretty bleak unfortunately but at the same time there is something we can still do about it at least i think at this point we can still keep doing our work and then yeah and i guess we'll see what happens hopefully we built a good enough foundation that uh that as we keep growing uh, you know we can maybe help make things better. Well, Hattie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The magazine The World of Chinese is available online in print on WeChat, on Weibo, all around us. So be sure to check out the latest issue. And if you like it, please subscribe to The World of Chinese. Hattie, I hope you can, ha I hope you can join us again on another issue. This, uh, yeah, I hope you can sure. join us again on another episode. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. And you know, I think Hattie being somebody who is working in both worlds and really trying to make the world of Chinese a truly global facing source of information and stories about China and trying to be objective about it. And, and I think, you know, in an increasingly ideologically charged information environment, sometimes objectivity is its own kind of edgy. And it, it's sad to say that, but it, that seems to be the world we're living in. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's kind of a, uh hopeful to see what she's doing, but also a little sad that this is probably the outer limits of what you could do. You mentioned Sixth Tone. I think that's another good example uh, you know, of a paper that's trying to, to do some real content and, and a little bit pushing the boundaries. But I think this is a uh, world of Chinese is a kind of a sweet spot because they, they're under the umbrella of the commercial press, which is a very respectable, well-known press with great credentials. And, you know, also it's it's framed 
this 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 magazine, this publication is framed as educational and outwardly focused. And also, let's not forget that it's in English. You know, anything in English, including these the 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 broadcast media, has much looser standards than than the Chinese media. And then also, you have a very savvy, smart uh, editor like like Hattie, who knows these dynamics quite well and is is multicultural and multilingual. And so. I think that's an, a, a very nice spot to be in and can, can continue to produce some really meaningful content that gives us a true idea of the diversity and interesting aspects of China. And so this is a this is a kind of a a rare kind of situation. So I you know kudos to her and I hope that she can keep it going. Yeah, me too. Also, I can take personal experience. She's a tough editor in the best way. She's she's actually one of the. Uh, one of the best editors I've ever worked with. Yeah, so we, we we've been wanting to get Hattie on for a long time, and I'm really glad we were able to do that. Great, it was great uh, talking to her. The world of Chinese talk talking doesn't work. Okay, sorry, I should have used it with her. Cue the drums. Thank you for joining us. On another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. On that note, we will talk to you again. 